Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey there, this is Dr. Rob, and I'm here to talk to you about sex, porn, and the culture wars, which is something that I find myself caught up in in ways that I really, if I can't have your empathy, at least I want your understanding. So I'm going to take a show out for me, if you will, to talk about a little bit of what I see going on in the field of human sexuality and sexual behavior and and the digital world, porn, all of that stuff, because I'm running into it as a professional. And in some ways, I think it's sort of a mirror of what we're all dealing with in our culture right now. So let me set the scenario for you, and then I'll begin to play out my story. So I was in Australia a couple of weeks ago. I was asked to go there to speak about porn addiction and porn problems. And as you may have heard me talk about before, we don't really have all the research on porn addiction, quote unquote. We know that people have porn problems. We know some people are compulsively struggling with porn. We know some people have a problem related to early life porn use related to the internet. We know some people have porn problems for other reasons. We don't have, as scientists and therapists, without question, we don't have this whole thing figured out. I'm leaping into that fray because I've been working with compulsive and addictive sexual issues so long that I think I have a good sense of how porn and the isolating compulsive masturbation to porn can affect people's lives in a particular way because I've watched it. I didn't necessarily grow up with it, watching it uh, with magazines and videos, although there was some porn addiction back in the day with that. But I certainly have seen it in the last 25 years or 20 years with internet porn and what's been going on online. So people invite me to conferences to speak about porn problems and what could be problematic about porn. And I, you know, that's a good choice because I'm a pretty good speaker and I can basically talk about the issue. But here's the issue that I run into. And I, for whatever reason, I want to share it with you guys. You know, I go to a conference, in this case, Australia, and the focus of the conference is to prevent children under the age of 18 from accessing porn. And I can get behind that. I don't necessarily think that anybody under 18 should have access to porn. And if they do, maybe by parental permission or something, I don't know. Not my job, not my arena, but that was the conference. And I understood that my role was to talk about how porn for some people can be compulsive or problematic or difficult. And, you know, my talk about the stuff we deal with here. So I did. And I did a pretty good job. But what I realized was once I got all the way on the other side of the world, uh, literally, was that I was not really being invited to discuss the, the scientific nature of how porn can be problematic for some people. This was an event about how bad porn is, period. And what I find happening in scientific conferences like this one was supposed to be, it was not, is that people who are invited with a strong point of view, 
especially in the sex world. So let's say, for example, you're anti-porn. You think porn is bad. You have a feminist argument. You think it's terrible. You think it ruins people's lives. You are adamantly anti-porn and you have very strong feelings about that. I respect you. I think you have every right to have that belief system. And you know, I I'm really don't have an opinion about it. That's really up to you. Um, as a therapist, it's not my job to decide. So I went to a conference where my job was to talk neutrally about the general issues that might occur with some people around problematic porn use. What I encountered was a group of people who were very disappointed in me as the speaker, that I was not endorsing that porn is terrible for everyone. And there is a really big message out there. Gail Dines is a big carrier of that message. She's probably the biggest one. A sociologist, very well-respected, lovely woman um, who has very, very strong feminist beliefs and on other levels social, sociological about porn. And I've actually talked to Dr. Dines. I have, Dines, I have to tell you, our roads don't really cross very much. She is talking about the large cross-cultural broad issues in uh, America and the Western world related to porn and how it affects women and lives. And, and that's not what I do. I just kind of work with people who have problems with porn. And, I, and other things around sex. And I don't really decide for you or for anyone else whether porn is good or porn is bad because I think then I'd be a bad therapist. Because if porn works for you or, or alcohol works for you or drugs work for you or gambling works for you, it's not my job to say that it doesn't or it's bad or wrong as a therapist. So as a person who has a bit of a, a brand name, someone who's a bit of a expert that is known People expect certain opinions of me. And the opinion that is expected of me when I go into a conference of people who are very, very anti-porn is porn is bad for everyone. Porn is terrible and it ruins people's lives. And if I don't say that, then, and this is what happened to me in Australia, no one wanted to take me to dinner. No one wanted to have lunch with me. Nobody wanted to hang out with me from the conference, despite the fact that I'd come all the way across the world to do it. But boy, did they want to hang out with people, and I have to say this, who really had no knowledge in a deep clinical way of these issues. There were people on stage who were ranting about how bad porn was, how terrible porn was, but they weren't citing statistics or facts. They were just citing lists of porn titles. Like, isn't this terrible? Isn't this terrible? Or look at what this man made this woman do in this image. And believe me, fear sells. I can show you a thousand images from online porn and a thousand messages that would make you tell me porn is horrible and it should never be on the planet again. But I could also probably show you a whole bunch of images that are positive and engaging about couples and intimacy and relationships, and that porn for some people can be useful. And the bottom line is it's not my job as your therapist or as an expert in this field to tell you that in general around everything, porn is bad or porn is bad, good. Not my job. And I want to tell you what the other end of this is for me as a professional and as an expert. When I go out to a group of sexologists and sexual health professionals who are very much focused on sex, not in any way being pathologized, not in any way being called problematic or bad. So these are folks like David Lay. These are folks who believe that under no circumstances, or at least they express these beliefs, that under no circumstances could sex ever, consensual sexual behavior be between two adults or by yourself as an adult be a problem ever. And therefore, if sex is a problem, you kind of need to get over your shame around sex or your embarrassment around sex or your culturally bound struggle with sex and just get used to it. Well, that is a nice idea also. And when I go to sexual health conferences, people get really upset with me when I talk about sexual addiction and sexual compulsion and porn addiction because the sexual health people do not want to talk about sexual problems in the arena where I deal with them, compulsive and addictive. They just think that it's a conservative, negative way of bashing on human sexuality. And that is simply not true. This is the whole point of my podcast today is that people like me are not pro-porn or anti-porn or, you know, I'm just a therapist and I'm interested in the research. 
And the research tells me that for some people in some situations, porn is really a problem. And for other people in other situations, porn really is not. And what this reminds me of is prohibition. Because I've read enough about that period of time. And if you really want to be interested in prohibition in the United States, there's a great Ken Burns documentary on prohibition is what it's called. And he talks about how prohibition came about and where it's from. And, you know, but it was a cultural phenomenon that had religious and moral and conservative overtones that basically had to do with alcoholism in America. And the way it was chosen to be dealt with at that time was that since alcohol was a big problem in a public way for certain people, we decided to ban alcohol from the United States altogether. And I don't know if you know a little bit about that history, but it didn't go so well. (laughs) And so, you know, when we talk about absolutes, porn is good, porn is bad, alcohol is good, alcohol is bad, gambling is good. You know, when we're talking about our pleasures and our human desires and our human interests, I think it's always a bad idea to be in black and white. This is good for everyone. This is bad for everyone. But I tell you what, if you want to get a lot of people in an audience, if you want to grow your uh, popularity, then you go out there and say, oh my God, this, whatever it is, XYZ is ruining humanity, ruining my children. Put it on the cover of Time Magazine and fear sells. It is true about the media that they will purport fear. You know, if you put um, something on Time Magazine cover like, wow, children are really suffering with depression and anxiety related to their internet time, a lot of people are going to buy that magazine. If you say on the cover of Time Magazine, one study indicates some children are struggling with uh, anxiety and depression around their technological lives, but most people seem to be doing okay. Well, that's just not news. So you have to understand that the news in general overstates fear and anxiety-based subjects because that's what sells the media and that's what gets us to watch. When people get on a stage and say, porn is bad and it's ruining your life and look what it does to women and this and that and the other thing, you know, I could quote lots of stories about women and men I've known who've managed to go into the porn industry to to pay the rent, to get their kids, you know, feed their kids. Like that was the best they could do at that time was to enter that industry to survive. And so I've worked with enough of those people and I have enough respect for those people and love for some of those people to understand that whether you choose to be in porn, be involved with porn or, or look at porn, it's really not my job to understand what it means to you or what it is for you, right or wrong. If you decide to have this kind of sex or that kind of sex and you're enjoying it and your partner's enjoying it and everybody gets along and it's not illegal and who cares, you know? However, I do think it's important to pay attention when people come in and say, for some of us, for some people, alcohol is a problem. For some people, porn is a problem. And that I can listen to. When I went to Australia a couple of weeks ago, the goal of this organization, I really liked it. It's the reason I went all the way there was because the goal was, can we use facial recognition techniques to help protect our kids from porn? Can we make it possible that no one under the age of 16 or no one under the age of 18, whatever the state decides, whatever y'all decide, you know, you need face recognition. If they're not of an age, they can't look at porn. Do I think that's a bad idea? No, I think it's a great idea. I'm not so much worried about the 16, 17, 18-year-olds are going to miss out on porn. I'm much more worried about the 8-year-olds, 9-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, and 12-year-olds who are much too young to be looking at it and are exposed to it in ways that may be for some of them problematic later. So folks, if you listen to me and you listen to my work, I hope that you're open to the kinds of things I'm saying, because this is not a unique or isolated issue to therapy. We are living in an age where expertise is devalued. I was recently talking to some folks about the porn issue, and these were some young men who were really struggling with porn, and I'm writing a book about porn problems, porn addiction, so I'm gathering as much research as I can. And in talking to some of these young guys who'd found you know, a book they liked and a point of view they liked, and they were all over that. 
I said to them, you know, well, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And what do you think about a book that is more kind of clinical and speaks to more broad issues about porn, not just the things you're looking at? And, and they said to me, what do you really have to say about this? Because you haven't written a hugely popular book on porn like this other person has, and you don't have all these followers like this other person has. So you're probably not as educated, or maybe you just want to be more like them. And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> we're living in a time where, no offense folks, but I got a PhD. I've spent 25 years treating clients. I have given my life to writing books and helping people with intimacy and sexual issues. I do think that means something. I do think that 25 years of experience and seven books and eight treatment centers and going all over the world training means that I know things. And that's not about me particularly, but it is about the people who know things. Folks, I have been to conferences recently where I applied to speak as a doctor, as someone with great experience with other colleagues who were also doctors and had lots of great experience and we're pretty good speakers. And we were turned down to speak at the conference without question. For the person who had more media contacts than we did, and the person who gave a lot more money to the conference because they bought a really expensive booth. Well, I got to tell you, if clinical and therapy and educational conferences are based, as they mostly have been over the last 10 years, by how much someone can afford to pay to prop up the conference so that they can get their own treatment center speaker on the stage, again, that's an anti-expert experience. When the person who shouts the loudest on Twitter or online or on TV gets the most attention, it doesn't mean that they have the most knowledge. And I think that that is part of the disinformation challenge that our culture has right now is that we've devalued experts. You know, my voice on Twitter, it's a truth. I, I have lots of followers and I say lots of things on Twitter. And what I say comes from 25 years of experience, a PhD, a master's, and multiple treatment centers and books. Now, you may think that's all a bunch of crap, and that's fine. But if you do respect that amount of work and experience, then you probably think that what I have to say might have some value to you. Maybe. But then if someone gets on the stage who has an opinion, a strong opinion, and they can sell it with fear and anxiety and, and they can wave their arms and make everyone, they are as meaningful and as important a speaker as I am to the audience. But that's simply not true because facts matter, especially in the therapy world. Facts matter in the sex therapy world and with intimacy and sexual issues. I can't tell you how much facts matter because there's an almost no area of human behavior where people have more opinions on every end of the spectrum than human sexuality. Well, somehow I've managed to spend my entire career never being sued, never having everyone really go after me. I don't even think I have that many nasty letters, despite the fact that I talk about all of this. And I don't think I'm Teflon. I'm sure there's someone who could come after me in some way if they wanted to. But here's the reality. I'm just speaking facts. I'm just talking about my experience, my work, the people I've worked with, the research that I know and what I see going on in the world and using that knowledge, experience and information to filter what I see going on in, in the world. And I actually think that matters. And it matters more than someone with an opinion. And it matters with more than someone even with a strong opinion. Now, if you want to go learn about and you have strong spiritual beliefs or religious beliefs or cultural beliefs that porn is bad, by all means, I support you to join a group, join the public health mission around porn, help keep porn out of the hands of our children and maybe our adults. If that's what you believe, go for it. But don't expect me to back you up as an expert because I don't have the research on that. Because for some people, porn isn't a problem and for some people it is. And just because you want to get it on stage and get really hysterical about all these terrible things that you're seeing happen to women in porn, I can tell you about some women who actually enjoy those things. And I've worked with them and I know them. So again, I think when we make broad sweeping statements about sex addiction can't exist, 
That's ridiculous. Of course it exists. It's, you know, a compulsive sexual behavior disorder is sexual addiction. There's no question about it. And by the way, here's another rant while I'm ranting. I I hope you guys like my rants, but I, I try to keep them engaged. It drives me crazy. The fact that the sexual health field, the American Association for Sexual Counselors, Therapists, and Educators, ASECT, they don't believe in sex addiction, which is just shocking to me. How can our leading American organization around human sexuality not believe that sex addiction exists? They fought it for years. And this is a cultural issue, not a clinical issue. This is, again, people kind of shouting their beliefs. And if they shout loud enough, even though they don't have the research to back them, even though there are clinical diagnoses now across the world for compulsive and addictive sexual behavior, they're going to continue to shout it doesn't exist because that's their belief. And listen, guys, everybody gets to have a belief and everybody gets to shout it out in this era we live in. But if you want to grow and you want to learn and you want to really take on issues that are more related to fact than belief, then you got to follow the experts. You know, it makes me crazy. It sets my hair on fire that half the treatment centers for a drug and alcohol treatment in America don't really have a whole bunch of experts. And do you really think that someone goes into drug and alcohol treatment and the only problem they have is drugs? There are drug and alcohol experts in most drug and alcohol treatment centers, but what about the experts in trauma? What about the experts in intimacy? What about the experts in sexual issues? Do you know that most treatment centers in America don't ask someone if they masturbate or what kind of porn they look at or how they feel about their sexual life? I don't understand how we can do mental health treatment or it's certainly addiction without asking people about human sexuality. So these are some of the rants, you guys, since you've listened to 66 shows of mine or whatever, this is the real me. Okay. This is me ranting about the challenges I have in my world. I just want to help people. And if I help people, but I don't take a point of view that I believe to be extreme, this is good, this is bad, this exists, this doesn't, then I'm somehow some kind of bad guy. If I'm in the sexual health community and I say, you know what? Using the word addiction really matters. And let me tell you why. And to every sexual health therapist who's listening or may listen to this, I want you to understand why I use the word addiction, not compulsivity. Because I know and I understand myself all too well and as a professional that the sexual problems around addiction and compulsivity that my clients come with me to, they're going to have for the rest of their lives. These impulses, these fears, these challenges are always going to be with them no matter how much good therapy you do. And so do I say to every therapist here, when your client is done after two years of therapy or one year or six years or whatever the heck they're paying for, but they still have this problem the rest of their lives. Does that mean you haven't done good enough therapy or they need to see you for the rest of their lives and pay all that money? The reason I use the word addiction, and I hope the world hears this, is because if you admit that you are an addict, you have a place to go for free for the rest of your life called a 12-step meeting where people will hug you, support you, nurture you, sit on your couch to keep you from going out to see that sex worker if that's what it takes. And we do all that for free because we care and because that helps us heal. The only reason I specifically use the word addiction related to sex has nothing to do with Pat Carnes or diagnoses or any of that. It has simply to do with the fact that if you use the word addiction, then people who don't have a penny for therapy or don't have any resources to get help can go to 12-step meetings and get that help for free. And then when they are done with their therapy, for those who have the resources to have it, they can continue to get that kind of support for a lifetime without having to go back to expensive therapies or treatment. The whole point of 12-step is you have a, a free support for the rest of your life. And what could be better for that for any of our patients? 
So for the folks to say, oh, well, it's compulsion. Oh, well, it's obsession. You know, that's fine. Call it what you want, but send people to a meeting because there they're going to find like-minded people who they can relate to, who will guide them and be their support and maybe their friend for the rest of their life in their shared struggle to not act out sexually. That's why I refer to 12-step. That's why I use the word sex addiction. Hear me out. This is the reveal, okay? It's not about the 12 steps. It's not about the spirituality. It's not about Pat Carnes. It's not about the term sex addiction. or compo- I don't care what you call it. What I care about is that people who don't have financial resources, people who don't have the ability or time to get support from a therapist or a treatment center, maybe they can go online for free or they can go to a a church basement free and go to a support group and they can start to grow and learn without a therapist, without spending that money and have that support the rest of their lives. And no therapist can offer free support and direction for the rest of someone's life. That is why I use the word addiction. Now, if someone has to take on this uncomfortable label for uncomfortable behavior like sexual acting out, if 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 they have to say, maybe I'm a sex addict or maybe I'm a porn addict, and if that is the price of admission, to a club where you can go for free and get help the rest of your life. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter how down on your luck you are in that 12-step SAA or SCA or, or you know sex and love meeting, people will support you no matter what. What could be better than that? And if you don't use the word addiction, you lose all of that. I'm not invested in the word. I'm invested in the process. And by the way, the things I'm ranting about today, thank you for those of you who've hung in there and been willing to listen to my rant. These are the challenges I have trying to help people. If I get yelled at because I'm not anti-porn or pro-porn or whatever, it keeps me from helping people. If people think that I have an agenda, pro-porn, anti-porn, pro-this, pro-that, anti-gay, whatever it is, then I can't help people because with that opinion, I already have a belief about what it means to see that client and what they need when I haven't even met them yet. So it is not okay for me as a therapist to decide porn is good, porn is bad, sex addiction doesn't exist, but compulsivity does. I have to understand the effect it's going to have on the person that I'm working with. I'm not going to be around forever, folks. I'm 58. You got another 15 years with me and I won't be doing this podcast all that long. But I'm telling you now, If you have a sexual addiction or a sexual compulsion problem, if you have a porn addiction or a porn addiction problem, it is real, it is meaningful, and you need to go see a professional who believes you and also has an understanding that using the word addiction is not shaming, it's not humiliating, it's not casting aspersions on sexuality, it's embracing my vulnerabilities. To say I'm an addict is to say, wow, I have limits. And I've learned what they are. And I can't do this, that, or this. And if I do, I get in trouble. But I can do that. That's what it means to be an addict to every day. Understand that you have limitations around certain behaviors or activities that you need to watch out for. And if you don't, you're going to end up in trouble. And it doesn't just happen once. It will happen all of your life. So why not call it what it is? Addiction. In any case, that's a bit of my ranting. I wrote a blog this week. I think I called it, it's something about porn and the culture wars. I wrote wrote it for Psych Central. And I can't, I write a couple of blogs a week, guys. So I do a lot other than podcasts. I write for Psychology Today, in case you didn't know. I have a blog called Sex and Love in the Digital Age. And I think on Psych Central, my blog is called Sex and Intimacy in the Digital Age. In any case, I write a couple of blogs. And this week's blog was about this whole trip to Australia. And you know, my struggle with it, and I want to say it to you guys again, going back to the beginning is if I could have stood on those stage with those people and they had all just said, 
we are united in keeping porn from underage people. And we all agree that underage people should not have access to porn. And that we're going to work together to make sure that doesn't happen. Boy, I could get behind that message. Boy, could I help them. I could help them use my expertise, my knowledge, my experience, whatever, or whatever kind of name I have to help with that project. I wanted to. That's why I went to Australia. But the minute someone got on that stage and said, well, we're all here to discuss how porn is bad for everyone, adults, everybody. I was like, "Mm, now I'm off the bus. Not because I believe that or I don't believe that, because I'll never tell you what I actually believe because I'm a therapist. What I actually believe doesn't matter. What matters is what you believe and what your needs are and what you bring to the table as my patient or as my client or coming to our treatment center. So what I'm trying to get across to you in general terms is what's going on in the culture. There are experts in many, many areas, law, music, science, who are being drowned out by louder voices that have more money or that can shout louder. And I want you, my listeners, to be discerning about what you listen to. There's a lot going out there in politics, in culture, everywhere that's demanding our attention. And it's not just demanding our attention in case you haven't noticed. It's demanding us to take a side. And I have to tell you, as a professional, as a therapist, it has been the most challenging thing for me and in the most important to not take sides. Here's another useful piece of information for you. I tell you, this is a therapist and boy, this will help you. Guys, if you're stuck in an unhappy marriage where you have an angry wife, this will help you. If you are in the debate world where I am and you are trying to debate facts to people who have strong emotional beliefs and opinions, then learn this. You can never intellectually argue someone off an emotional position, ever. If you have an angry spouse, you can say, well, I did this and I did that. You can give them all the intellectual argument. They don't give a crap. They want you to understand how they're feeling. And so when I'm encountering that sort of anti-porn person who's like, porn is bad, it's terrible for everyone, and this is what it does to women, and they have no interest in my facts. There's no interest in another point, because this is about a point of view. This is about a feeling. And feelings, as we know in addiction, are not facts. So we seem to be living in a culture right now, and I acutely feel this in sexual health and sexual healing, where number one, you have to grab a point of view, you've got to have an opinion, and you've got to be right, and you've got to fight the other side. Let me tell you where I am with my field of human sexuality in America, folks, and I hope that you share this with anyone who has any interest in human sexuality. Right now, I live in a world, and I have for 20 years, where the people who work in sexual offending hate the people who work in sex addiction. They don't believe what we do. They don't understand it. They don't like us and they don't agree with us, but they use all our methods and we use all of theirs. Same work, basically. The sexual health people don't believe in sex addiction, hate the sex addiction people and think the sex offenders are not treated properly. It's a mess. So the sex offender people don't like the sexual health people. The sexual health people don't like the sex offender people and no one likes the addiction people. Here's my sort of shout out to the sexual health world, to the human sexual health world. Why are we in different camps? All of us work with a continuum of human sexual behavior from problematic to wonderful. And I think that that has meaning in and of itself. If we could come together, put down our differences, you don't agree with this and you don't agree with that and you don't, and start talking about what we have in common. We are dealing with human beings, these complex, beautiful, loving, intimate, broken experiences. And we can learn so much more from each other by listening and by being curious rather than being right. And by the way, if you want to be right, have a PhD and have written a couple of books and have a master's and be out there for 20 years. And then I will take your arguments in and I will absolutely be really curious and really engaged. But if you're coming from an opinion, I'm sorry, I trump you. No offense, but I'm not coming from opinions. I'm coming from years and years and years of experience and facts and knowledge and writing. And that nothing can, nothing can make up for that. 
Experts matter, folks. Experts matter. If you go to a treatment center, make sure there's an expert there. Find out who they are. What book did they write? What do they know? What other treatment centers have they worked in? Don't you understand that the person that your husband or wife is going to be treated by, that is the most important person. It doesn't matter the name of the place or the pictures on the website. What matters about a treatment center is who is doing the work and who is going to help your therapist, your family, your partner, your loved one. Who is there? Are they expert or are they someone who started three weeks ago and an expert has their name on the program? Those are very different things. And I will tell you personally that I interact with every single client who comes to Seeking Integrity because I want to make sure that they're getting the best care that they need. And I think that's what experts do. So if you have feelings about my rant, and I don't rant very often, I've gone 63 titles, I think, without a rant. If you have feelings about my rant, you can write me at rob at seekingintegrity.com. Uh, seekingintegrity.com is our treatment center. Sex and relationship healing.com is where our self-help free site is. You get free help. There's lots of places to contact me and reach me. You can find me twice a week online. You can talk to me directly, yell at me if you want. I will say, calm down, but I'm interested in what you have to say. And if you have a belief or an opinion, I'm really curious and want to understand what that means to you and why you have it, but don't tout it as fact. Facts are what they are and they're hard enough to come by. And those of us who recognize them and help create them, give us a break. Okay. With all due love and respect to all of you, and I hope you keep listening, this is Dr. Rob signing off for now. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.